So if you're opening your, your Bibles again to the book of Romans, this letter of Paul to the church in Rome. And last week we, we started with the, um, the opening, the greeting, verses 1 through 7, as we saw that Paul is introducing himself, the gospel, Jesus Christ, and explaining to the Roman Christians who they are in Christ. And Paul calls himself a, a called apostle so that he is an emissary of God, a missionary of God, a messenger of God, an ambassador of God where he has been appointed by Jesus Christ to uh, be his representative, to bring his word to the people so that he has the authority to write scripture under the power and authority of the Holy Spirit. And then we are called in verse 7, loved by God and called saints. We are called holy ones. God just as God has called Paul to his position, he has also called Paul and us to a position of holiness so that we are called saints, which is the Latinized word for holy ones in Scripture, so that we are called his set-apart people. So we're going to read now verses 8 through 15. So let us go to the Lord of his word first. Again, our most gracious, loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you sent your son so that you spoke not only by your spirit, you spoke not only in things in the creation, but he through which creation was, was accomplished came in human flesh, truly God, truly man, to represent you on earth, to fulfill the covenant demands, the demands of the law in our place, and to come truly as man so that in Christ, the demands of law were met by the second Adam. So we thank you that as we are here to learn more about you Jesus, and Jesus Christ through your Holy Spirit, that you have blessed the preaching and hearing of your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation, both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. The word of the Lord. So it begins with a word, first. So when you hear first, you might expect a second or a third or a lastly. But here, you don't have that. So this is not what he means. First, now second, now third. But he means, first of all, but me, my wife's kind of laughed at me because she'll say something about, you know, let's go to eat or something, doing something. And I'll say, well, let's get that out of the way and then we'll do this. And it's like, he's not saying, let's get this out of the way. He's like, first, 
first of all, I want to say this before we go anywhere else with this. I've established who I am. That's what you did in the letters back then. This is who I am. This is who you are. And I'm thankful for you. So now we're in this thankful portion of the letter. And in all of Paul's letters, if you read them, this is the way they work, too. He'll always go to the second part of saying, let me tell you what I'm thankful for. And the only letter he does not do this in is the letter to the Galatians, where instead of saying, I, I thank my God or I am thankful, what he says is, I am amazed. I marvel that you're so quickly turning away. And so you, you, when you get that letter from Paul, you know, okay, I think we, we better listen up. So what we want to hear in this gospel this letter, as if it is written to us even this morning, as he has said who he is and who we are, he says, first of all, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. So he is setting this up where he's like, I'm not writing this to you because you have such a weak faith. I'm not writing this to you because I'm, I'm, you guys are just really not doing too well. Paul didn't plant this church. We're not exactly sure exactly who did plant this church. But it's, it's amazing because this is Rome. This is pretty much the, the capital of the, of the known world at this particular time. This is, this is amazing that there is this church that's taking place even in Rome. And it's been, their faith is known throughout the whole world. So he's using what we call hyperbole a little bit. It's not that every single person on the entire planet has necessarily heard of this, but we're just like, you know, it's heard all over the world. Every place that he goes, everywhere that the gospel has gone forth, all these lands in the known world, it's like we've heard of your faith. And that's a great encouragement, too, to the church in Rome. Um, a lot of the Jews at this time, Nero had pushed out of, of Rome. The Caesar had said, you know, the, the Jews need to leave. And so at some point, some of them began to come back. So there's mostly, uh, probably at this time, Gentile believers in this church at Rome. And so Paul is writing to them as an encouragement, but also because what he wants to do is strengthen their faith. But what first he's doing is, I want to say, you already have faith. You already are called. This is the gospel to believers. But we've seen, and we're going to talk about a little bit too, is there's also going to be a gospel to non-believers in your area. So let's not ever think that the gospel is just for those people out there. Let's not get to the point where we're like, thank God we're all in here, we're a good holy huddle, but man, that world out there is messed up and we need to go out there and get it fixed. Okay? Because this world in here is messed up, but we're saved and God is at work. And as we preach the gospel to ourselves, we hear the gospel preached and proclaimed, we continue to be saved. We're once finally saved and justified. But Paul will even use the, the, the idea, we see it in the New Testament, of this ongoing growth in the Lord, this ongoing progress in our salvation. So when you turn to the Lord, you're saved. The, the sinner on the cross, next, the thief on the cross next to Christ, today you'll be with me in paradise. It's just at the moment a sinner turns to Christ, he is saved or she is saved. But there is this blessing of this ongoing sanctification, we call it, which we see in the Lord's Supper, which is you need this to live. You need this. You, you can't go long without eating. You need to be fed. You need to be nourished. And so this is what the gospel is to the believer. It's a continued nourishment, a continued growth in this knowledge and grace of the Lord. So look what he does when he thanks. What of what his thankfulness consists. And he's thanking the Lord for all of, and again, look up the y'all version of the Bible and you can get each translation and they change that, 
the plural used to y'alls, because Southerners understand the necessity of this. I thank Jesus Christ for, for y'all, for all of y'all. And he's thanking God for them. And this is important because the first person here that he's addressing is them, but he's telling them, I'm thinking, and he says, my God. So he's not saying as opposed to your God, but there is this relationship. There is this possession of God as his God. I belong to the Lord. He belongs to me. He is my God. And in, and in that sense, too, he is also your God. So he could very well say, I think our God. But in his prayer, as he is praying to God, as we would say, alone in his prayer closet, as he's praying to God, he says, I pray to my God. So you can tell when he's praying, he prays to his God, the one that he knows, and he prays in this personal relationship to God through Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is the only way to God the Father. You can, we can pray to God ourselves because Jesus has enabled us to be able to pray to God directly, God the Father, um, through Jesus Christ. What he did on the cross and what he has done has enabled us as individuals not to have to go to a pastor, not to have to go to somebody that calls themselves a priest. You don't have to go to somebody else and say, pray for me, present these needs to God for me, because God has, in this sense, that Martin Luther, I believe, coined the term the priesthood of believers, we are all able to represent ourselves and others before our Father in heaven through Jesus Christ. He's the mediator. He's the high priest. He's the one you do have to go to, and he has us. He's in us. By his Holy Spirit, we go directly to God the Father through Jesus Christ. And so we believe in this Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, same in substance, equal in power and glory. And what does he pray for to his God through Jesus Christ? As he's praying for all of y'all, he's praying for them because y'all's faith is proclaimed in all the world. And that's, he's thankful to God for this. Now don't miss that either. He's not saying, hey, I want to say whoever it is that went and share the gospel with you guys. Whatever, I don't know if it was a tent revival or if it's just going through and shouting on the streets or he did individual evangelism or whatever happened when the gospel went through and caught a hold of you guys and now there's a church in Rome. But I know who was at work and it was God. I thank my God for all of y'all because your faith is proclaimed in the world. So who am I thanking for that? God. And that's who we have to pray for. If you want to see revival, one, pray for your soul to be revived. <laughs> Revive, oh my soul. You know, the Psalter sings of this, you know, singing to my soul, oh Lord, my God, please soul, live, arise, do these things. And then as you begin to, to grow in the Lord, as your light begins to shine brighter, even as you go through hardships or you sin and then you confess your faith and ask for forgiveness and you grow in these ways, people are supposed to be able to see these things and then give glory to your Father in heaven. And so they might see you doing good things in the world, but unless they know you're a believer, and yes, you're saying, I'm doing these things in the name of Christ, they won't know to give glory to your Father in heaven. But it is God that we thank for our faith. It is God that we thank for the faith of the church. And then in verse 9, he says, God for God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit, in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing, I mention y'all. 
So again, we have to recognize that he's, he's saying God's my witness. What he's saying is, I want you to know how serious I am about this, that there is prayer that I give for you, and I do it without ceasing, that he serves God. He's, so he's saying he serves the gospel of his son with his spirit. So he's serving in the gospel. So you can kind of get caught up with these words that go through this, but I want you to think about what he's doing is I'm serving in the gospel. It's similar to somebody who might be in war in the military, and they say, I've served in the war, or I'm serving in the war. I'm serving in the army. This is Paul is saying, I'm serving in the gospel, and I'm serving with my spirit. So this is more than just a, a heart issue. This is more than just a mind issue. It's not just intellectual. It's not just emotional, and it's not even just intellectual, emotional. It's spiritual. It goes beyond these things. It's not less than, because it's certainly, if the gospel has not gripped your heart and your emotions, it has not gripped you. But if you don't have some sort of a, a, a knowledge-based information about who God is and what he's done based on what this, the Bible says, but you have all this love for God, then you could very well be worshiping an idol. You could be worshiping an idol which cannot save who you have named Jesus Christ. And that Jesus Christ cannot save. So be very careful that when we say whosoever believes in the name of Jesus Christ, it is meaning that who Jesus Christ is in his person, who he actually is, belief in who he is, that saves. And so we have to have this intellectual knowledge and the question is, well, how much intellectual knowledge do I have to have? How smart do I have to be? What all do I have to do? And it's like, good news. Faith is a mustard seed. But you have to have right information in order to understand the gospel. You can't respond to the gospel if you haven't heard the gospel. So you have to have some indication of it. And you've got to have some kind of love of it. But once a person truly embraces the gospel, one of the things that you begin to understand is, or maybe you even understand this at the beginning, is this is an awakening from God. This is, this is a spiritual thing. This goes beyond information that I've been given, and it's like, this makes logical sense. I will follow this because this system makes logical sense. And it goes beyond something. It's like, I love this philosophy. This thing, this makes me feel good. This makes me happy. I will do these things because it brings me joy. It's like, okay, there, there are those things that can bring joy and people can follow and it can be an idol and it can lead you to hell. There can be things that seem logically coherent and it sounds real good and it can lead you to hell. But believing in the gospel, there's more to just logical understanding. There's more than just emotional um, grasping. It's not less, but it is more than this as you recognize that the spirit of the risen Christ has caused an awakening within you so that what you feel and sense and see is a mysterious connection between us and God through the Holy Spirit that you sense as you hear the word preached, that you sense as you read the word and study the word so that when you're reading and you're gaining information about God, that serves what we call our doxology. It serves the more we learn about him, the more we want to learn about him. And then the more we... we the, and the more we love him, and then the more we love him, the more we want to know about him. And it's this never-ending condition in which a believer finds himself until we walk off the path and we sin, or God, by his fatherly displeasure, says, hey, I love you, and you need to stop what you're doing because you're walking off the path. And he does this in different ways, but the Bible says that he disciplines those he loves. Our problem is we see every little stumble, every little time that something bad happens is, God must be displeased with me, and he's teaching me a lesson. 
It's like, uh, I don't know, maybe he's very pleased with you and he's allowing you to do this because he's going to give you a gift of growing or he's using you to reach somebody that he can only reach with somebody else that's been hurt in the way you are. I don't know. God is at work in great and powerful ways, but what we have to have a first importance is that Paul is thanking his God for the church because of the faith with which we have and by which we are called saints and holy ones and beloved by God. So you have to maintain the who I am in Christ so that that is your first importance. So when you go through dark times and you go through problems, you're able to remember, though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, he is with me. So no matter what you're going through, and you come to church, you come to the corporate gathering of the believers, the body of Christ coming together all over the world as we do, and the word is preached, and we receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. We see the sacrament of baptism, the entrance into this covenant community. But when you're in this covenant and you're going through these hardships, and you hear the gospel, you're being fed by the Spirit. And when we go through difficulties, we have to know he's working in us. He tells us, come back. <laughs> Remember, I love you. I'm in you. I am with you. And so we have to examine ourselves and we want to make sure that what we're doing is pleasing to the Lord. But you do it in a way knowing that he loves you. You've been adopted and you're his. And then one of the things that we do want to make sure that we're doing is I'm always making sure you, know, you preach the gospel to yourself to make sure that you are clinging to it. You are his, that you actually do believe and love these things, as we, particularly as we've been lately taking communion uh, weekly, um, to say that this is a, a covenant renewal ceremony. So it's not just something that you're coming to do between you and God. It is that, but it's something that the body does as we come together, as God says, y'all are mine, and y'all are uh, and I am y'all's. And when Paul says in verse 9 that God is his witness who he serves with his spirit in the gospel of his son, this is what's happening. And as we're serving the gospel in the gospel of his son, we have to make sure that we too are serving in the spirit. The things that we try to do in the church, the things that we try to do as believers, it has to be done in the spirit, not just through self-help books or anything like that, that we're praying about it, we're seeing it in the word, we're talking together as a church, and we're serving the Lord in the spirit, not just merely with our own thoughts, our own minds, asking God to come along and bless the work of our hands, that we seek his face to find what he's doing so that we might follow him in these things. And he says, serving in the gospel of his son. So we can't miss this either, because this is, he says in verse 1, chapter 1, he was set apart for the gospel of God. And now he says, he's serving of the spirit in the gospel of his son. So this is the heart of the gospel. It's God's gospel. It's not Paul's gospel. It's not man's gospel. It's not the church's gospel. This is the gospel of God, the good news of God, the good news of Jesus Christ, who God, through whom God is reconciling the world to himself. So the word gospel means good news. So if you're serving in the gospel, what we're doing is we're serving as messengers. We're serving as bringers of the good news. That, the, that is the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. And he is a, Paul here is a proclaimer of the teachings of Jesus Christ as God's chosen instrument, um, as an ambassador to represent Christ to the churches. And he tells us, too, that we are supposed to have our faith seen by the world and that we're to tell others 
about the apostles and the prophets in the Bible, what we have been taught in the Holy Scriptures by the Holy Spirit, by God Himself. The Christian faith is more than emotions and knowledge. It's not less, but you must be born again by the Holy Spirit. And when we tell others about Jesus, we are sharing the gospel. We are serving in the gospel. Some people, as a pastor, am called to serve in the gospel in a slightly different way. Missionaries are called to, in different ways, but we are all called to service in the gospel. And so you have to think, how am I serving in the gospel? What's my role? What do I do? And the great commission for the church is to make disciples of all nations and you do that by baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to observe all that He commands. You have a role in that. And part of your role can just be praying for that commission. It can be sharing the gospel with your neighbor, making sure you're in the gospel, making sure that you're supporting missionaries, you're praying for missionaries, praying for me, praying for the church, praying for the elders, praying for the deacons, praying to see what other um, thing God might have you to do. You, you learn your gifts by service. I would say if you're not sure what your spiritual gift or gifts are, Start at seeing what you can do to serve. And you will begin to discover gifts in that service. So we become messengers of the good news. We become missionaries, in a sense, where we live, wherever we might go. And then later in Romans, Paul will write, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. And so Isaiah 52.7 is what he's quoting in Isaiah 52, 7, this Old Testament prophet looking forward to when the gospel is going to come forth. He even looks forward to the times of the new heavens and new earth. And he's quoting this verse that says, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, who publish peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, or you could very well say, says to the church, Your God reigns. R-E-I-G-N-S, as king. So this is the bringer of the good news. It's like, you know, you're waiting, you know, something's going on, things aren't looking too good, and we're waiting to hear how did the war go, you know, or what's happening, and then suddenly upon the mountains, coming toward, here comes the runner. What's he going to say? How's it going? And he's coming, he's coming, he has to catch his breath, everybody's waiting, it's like, what's the... What's the word, man? What's the word? And if it's bad news, oh, the runner is not well fed. The runner is not, you know, nobody likes the bringer of bad news. But when he brings this good news, he brings, there's victory, there's peace. Your God reigns. There's celebration, there's hallelujah. And all of a sudden, the feet of this runner are beautiful up on the mountains. And he's, yay! And so this is what Paul says, when you're bringing the gospel to people, beautiful upon the mountains are those, the feet of those who bring the good news. And heavens rejoice. Not everyone is going to respond because there are enemies of God and they might not respond to this as good news. But that's because they're lost. And then Paul also says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And the Holy Spirit is saving people even today. And he saves people by hearing the gospel, not just from people like me, but from people like you, people who go forth and are able to say, in my weakness, in my darkness, in my shame, in my poverty, in my riches, in my wealth, in my blessing, in whatever I do, I'm doing these things to the glory of God. To my shame, I fall, but I love my Lord. He forgives me. I will stand. I will rise again. 
And then when the great things that I'm able to do, maybe you have a lot of money, maybe you have a lot of gifts, maybe you're able to do, you just have charisma, you have all these things where you're just able to be a blessing to people, and you're able to say, that's the Lord at work. And so whatever we do, we do it all to the glory of God the Father. And as we share the gospel, and again, we've talked about the difference between verbal and nonverbal communication. So if you say you like somebody's cooking, but you're making a really bad face, People believe your nonverbal communication over your verbal communication every time. So if you're saying the gospel is good news, and then Jesus Christ saves, and I have a Savior, but you're living your life and you're making a face that says something opposite, we sing a song about it. If you're happy and you know it, your face will surely show it. So it's that thing. If you're sharing the gospel, but your life seems to say something else, people will believe that something else first. So make sure that you're able to preach the totality of the gospel that includes forgiveness and mercy and grace and that you who are so thankful for these things are quick to also extend those things to other people. So again, he says it's the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect life in our place. Jesus Christ, who was the actual son of God, came and lived um, fulfilling the law for us in our place. And then he died on the cross, uh, becoming a curse on the cross for us in our place as the second Adam. So you have to recognize what he was doing as the second perfect man to come, born sinless. He, this time where Adam fell, Jesus succeeds. Adam falls in a beautiful garden. Jesus succeeds. Uh, not having eaten or drink, drunk, drank uh, in a desert. And Satan comes and tempts him to give him a kingdom without a cross. And Jesus says, no. The Bible says, worship the Lord thy God and him only. Thou shalt not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And he succeeds perfectly, even to the point of death, even death on the cross. So at the death of Jesus, at his resurrection, at the elevation of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He did this for sinners so that if we would trust in him, if we would believe in him, if we embrace this good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ as our only hope for salvation, then we are saved. And this is the good news. And this is the good news of his son, Jesus Christ. And he says, again, in verse nine, I pray without ceasing, ceasing. It's a constant thing I'm praying for you guys. Always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. We learn a little bit about prayer here as we see Paul doesn't command God, you know, if, if he could just pray enough, if he could pray with just enough faith that he could get to Rome. And he's not been able to get to Rome yet. He's being hindered by different things. And if you, you know your scripture and you read the book of Acts, you find out Paul does finally make it to Rome. And the way he makes it to Rome is by appealing, appealing to Caesar because he's being arrested when he gets to Jerusalem. And he says, and, and was it Festus, the, whoever's in charge of him there, says, if he had not appealed to Caesar, we could have let him go. But apparently, if he had not appealed to Caesar, maybe he still wouldn't have made it to Rome. God had a plan for Paul's life. And it was that you're going to Rome and you're going to be there as a prisoner. You're going to go in chains. And this is how I'm going to show my glory. And it's going to be amazing. <laughs> and all Paul knows, I keep trying to get to Rome. 
but I've been hindered. But I'm praying that if by God's will, and we kind of do this when we pray, we're like, you know, give me this, give me that, help me with that, help me with this. In Jesus' name, you know, thy will be done. We add this, you know, if it be thy will, we sort of add these things. But make sure you don't just add that as an appendage to something. Make sure that when we're praying that we understand God has a will. God has a plan. God has things that he's accomplishing for his purposes in his ways that if you were to say, you know, let me, path, let me mark out the path that I desire. And then God would, you know, answer that. If you were to get these verbal communications, I hear you. But most likely what you're going to hear is, and we're going to do this thing that you're thinking of in a way that maybe you aren't aware of, but not in the way that you think this is going to happen. So you might say, you know, God, please help me with A, B, C. Please give me this thing. Please help this to be accomplished. And then you look and you look and you're like, I, don't, I can't understand why these things aren't happening. And then if you could see behind things, you might realize those things are happening. And if you look even deeper, you may even be surprised to know that thing you're asking for isn't really what you want. That the spirit who dwells within you prays with groanings too deep for words. So that as you're as you're praying your human desires informed by the Scriptures. So one of the best ways to pray is just try to pray Scriptures back to God. But we pray for healing. We pray for peace. We pray for these things. And God says, oftentimes, that's not the way the healing is going to be accomplished in this particular purpose, this particular place. That there will be healing ultimately one day, but you're not going to get this particular thing. It's not going to work according to the way. And if you understood what you're asking for, you'd ask a little differently. So it's so wonderful that the Holy Spirit fixes our prayers for us. So pray your heart. Pray the prayers of Jesus. And as you pray these things and you watch the providence, you watch the sovereignty of God work itself out in your life, keep a prayer journal. Keep little notes of things you've prayed for because I read sometime a long time ago, it's like, you would be surprised, and I've seen this too. I wish I did better about keeping a prayer journal, but if you look back at prayers you've prayed years ago, you might be very surprised at how many prayers of yours Jesus has answered that you forgot you prayed. You know, or you might be surprised the way that God has answered your prayers, the way your prayers operated in the, in the mysterious working of God in the world so that many things were accomplished through your prayers. And we can get very caught up into the, if God already knows, if God's all in control, why pray? One is because he tells us to. We see Paul's example of prayer. And the other is, it's like, if you want a garden in your yard, you can pray for that garden. But somebody's going to have to do something. And so if you pray for a garden, perhaps the way that prayer gets answered is Stan suddenly feels guilty for your puny looking yard and comes and plants a garden in your yard and it happens or you go out and you plant a garden and it comes about um, but you can try to plant a garden and nothing grow um, things can sometimes mysteriously pop up but prayer is one of these things that we do that is like tilling the soil it's like planting a garden it's like you know it doesn't guarantee that things are going to happen but without prayer uh, we're demonstrating that we go about our lives in ways that we think we can handle a lot of the small things, and, but the big things is when we'll go to God. So you have to be aware that if God were to back away for a second, um, if you think there's going to be a garden, you can plant it and walk away from it, come back in three years, and it's still going to be lush and beautiful without anybody doing anything, 
then you don't understand the, the, the work of prayer. And so I would just pray that we would become a prayerful church, recognizing that we're praying for God's will to be done, but yet God does accomplish his purposes through our prayers. If God wants a garden to grow out there, he's probably going to get somebody to take it upon themselves to go plant a garden. But God's in control of these things. And so God accomplishes his purposes in the world in a great deal, if not primarily through the prayers of his people. It's mysterious and it's strange, but your prayers are powerful and effective. You're not going to make God, God's like, I'm going to do this. Oh, wait a second. John Black, did you hear what John said? Never thought about that. That's not the way it works. God has a plan. He knows what he's going to do from the beginning. And what he's planned is all these prayers, all these works, all these actions are all been a part of his purpose and his plan. But we are to act. We are to live. We are to pray. We are to profess we are to do all these things. So he's praying in verse 10. Somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming, for I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. So Paul had this um, gift as an apostle to be able to get, and he doesn't even know what it is. He doesn't know what they need yet. So he's going to get there, sees what they need, and whatever spiritual gift, whatever it may look like, it's going to be for the building up of their faith. It's going to be for the building up of the church. It's going to be for their good. But then he says... Well, that is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. So he's not saying, hey, I'm going to come because he's not arrogant. He's not this super apostle guy that's going to show up and say, hey, I'm going to come in. I'm going to bless. I'm going to line your babies up. Line, everybody line up. I'm going to bless you as you go through. I'm going to give you all spiritual gifts, and it's going to be wonderful. This is going to be great. He's like, but wait a second. What I'm talking about is I want to give you this gift, but also I'm going to be built up by your faith too. We're going to build one another up in the faith. And if Paul is saying that, how much more for us that we would be built up with one another in the faith. And this is the primary purpose of the church. The, <clears throat> you certainly can be a Christian and go to heaven without ever setting foot in the church. But what Jesus says is, I will build my church, the ecclesia, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And he says in his scriptures that the church is a being built together as living stones. So we're all stones being built into this temple, but we're alive, living stones being built together into a temple for God. So we individually are living stones, possess the Holy Spirit. That's why we individually come to the Lord's table. But we as a church are being built together as living stones, being fitted together as living stones. And this is the problem, because you're being fitted together. And if you've ever done any sort of work with stone masonry or anything, and you're trying to fit something together, that means that this one's going to get chipped off a little bit, and that one's going to get chipped off a little bit, and you're going to fit it together, that one's going to get chipped off, and now you got one on top of that. And it's going to get chipped off, and this is what you experience in the church is you get start rubbing up against one another. You start getting little pieces of you chipped off and pieces of you chipped off and things make me mad, things please me, but we're being fitted together and all of a sudden, I imagine as a stone that's rather uncomfortable, as living stones, it's probably extremely uncomfortable. And so our first thought, second, third, fourth thought, perhaps as the pressure increases is, whoo, I'm going over here. <laughs> Those are smooth stones over there. They don't even worry about fitting together. They just get together, you know, until you're there for long, until you get to know people too well, until you start serving in church, and all of a sudden again, fitted together as living stones. And 
and we end up in these situations. So you have to be careful in the church that when problems arise, that you remember that's what's happening is, unless the gospel is being perverted, unless the church is turning into a synagogue of Satan, that um, God's working on you through other people, with other people. But we seek to encourage one another all the more as we see the day approaching. And this is what Paul is praying for, to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, yours and mine. No man is an island entire unto himself. So we have to make sure that what we're doing is living and working together, which is, again, one of the reasons we're given the Lord's Supper, so that Paul can even say, when you come together, it's not even the Lord's Supper that you're taking because you aren't caring for one another. You aren't loving one another. You're not discerning the body. And so we have to make sure that we're doing these things. In verse 13, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have intended to come to you, but this thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation, Gentiles being non-Jewish um, people, um, the nations, it can be called ethnos is the word here. I am under obligation to the Greeks and to the barbarians. I love that word. Somebody's a barbarian. I might have called Christian a barbarian before, the way you eat at the table or something. It's like, you eat like a barbarian. And that's the idea. It's actually a cool word is onomatopoeia. You say, that's a neat, neat word, onomatopoeia. And my mother taught me this word. She taught third grade in English, and she was, or whatever they call it in third grade. It's a, uh, it's a word that makes the sound like buzz, um, bang, all the Batman words. Bang, pop, pow. They sound like what they are. So a barbarian is supposed to be a person that can't even talk. They can't even do blah, 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 blah. They just, they, they aren't cultured like we Greeks are. They aren't, they aren't so special and high class. They don't know how to hold their fingers properly when they drink their tea or whatever they do. And um, he's like, but I, I am obligated to you guys that are like this, and I'm obligated to the people that you think are barbarians. Because God is no respecter of persons. And so we have to be aware as believers that we have to be very careful of the way we do these things. That, um, that we know that um, Acts 10, God says, Paul, Peter opens his mouth and he says, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, everyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So you've you got to make very sure that you don't Start to look at certain classes of people, uh, what we call today or any races of people, colors of people, uh, socioeconomic statuses of people, somebody that's poor, somebody that's rich. You have to make sure you're not distinguishing between these. In James chapter 2, he talks about you're giving the best seats to the rich. He's like, that's not good. So, you know, just so you know, in the church, the best seats apparently are in the back. <laughs> I just remember um, visiting a Baptist church when I was uh, a long time ago. I used to be a Baptist, but I visited a different church. And um, I sat in the front. I can't remember. Anyway, I shouldn't have started this story because I can't remember what the pastor said. But something about um, the best Baptists in the back, apparently. So we're back row Baptists. But um, I'm not trying to give you a hard time. I, I just noticed that at certain events you go to, the front rows are the, like at a concert. This is where you want to be. But very rarely does anybody sit here. And I can understand why. I've been known to have accidentally knocked a hymnal off, and it almost made it to the front pew one time. But um, I'm just being a little silly here, because what he's saying is when a rich person come in, comes in, don't suddenly be like, <gasps> you've graced us with your presence. Please come in. Here. Stan, give me that hymnal. This is for him. 
you know, then a poor person comes in, and you, don't, you treat them differently because they're kind of poor. You back off and, hey, how you doing? You know, Joe, you know, please sit back here. In that back room we have for people that don't smell too good, we appreciate that. You know, you can't be like that. You've got to be in your everyday life. You have to be the type of person that's able to fit in with all sorts of people. Uh, but, not in it, but if you're with sinners, you don't become a sinner. But you're able to be able to, to let people know that you love them regardless of where they may be in life, where they look in life, that you, because God does. And if God demands us to be cleaned up and rich and wealthy, then none of us are getting in. So we have to make sure that the, at your worst, when, which is really your best, but at your worst part in life when you're crying to God for his mercy and grace and salvation, just save me a sinner, a worm such as I, then, you know, you, you're over that, you're doing good, and somebody else comes in, they don't seem so good, and all of a sudden you're not treating them as well. This is, Paul is saying, I am, I am in obligation to the Greeks and to the barbarians, that God is no respecter of persons. He's not going to set one person as being better than the other, and so we have to make sure that we do this. Matthew 5, 7, the Beatitudes, blessed are the merciful because they will receive mercy. In the James passage, he talks about uh, mercy triumphing over judgment. So if somebody, you've judged somebody, or somebody's under judgment, and then mercy comes along, which one wins? I mean, which one prevails? So mercy always triumphs over judgment. So what we want to do with our personal judgments is be merciful, because that will triumph over judgment. And we're very grateful for that because God in our lives has shown us great mercy and has triumphed over the judgment of God over our sin. And then he says, both to the wise and to the foolish. So it's not just wise people, but for all people we try to be friends with, we try to be kind to, we try to share the gospel with everybody, whoever, wherever, and we want this gospel to go forth into all the world. Not so they'll become more like us. The Greeks aren't supposed to evangelize barbarians, so they become Greeks. And barbarians can't evangelize Greeks, so they become more like the barbarians. We're supposed to all do this, so we all become more like Christ. And that's very important in our world today. And then he finishes in verse 15, says, So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Like, I'm ready to go. There's a church there. I'm happy for your faith. But man, you guys need the gospel. So never forget that you need the gospel. And then the gospel is also for those outside of the church that we're praying for them, that they might become believers in God too. So these are the things that Paul is praying for. Then we get to verses 16 and 17 next week, which is the easy thing to preach, the hard thing to prepare for, because every book that's going to be written about this is this thick, just on these two verses. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Then he goes from Jew first and also to the Greek, for it is written that God is revealed, from the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And that's the purpose of the gospel. It's the purpose of this letter is that we might learn to live by faith. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you brought us as believers to this place by faith. We pray that you would help us as believers in, in, in your church, whatever church it may be, but that we, when we find and cling to and unite with a, a local church body, that when the, the fitting together begins to happen as the stones begin to be chipped away, that you would give us faith and strengthen us to, to stay together, to, 
to work together, and then to recognize when people are under, in pain, when they're under pressure, when things are happening, that, that we might encourage them. And we do look for these things all the more as we see the day approaching. So thank you for your word. Thank you for your gospel. Please impress its truths upon our hearts that we might even leave from here more like Jesus and that we might see and be more thankful for the workings in your world that we see. And we pray this in your holy name. Amen.